One that jumped out at me was AbbVie. I've been covering their Humira patent clip for several years now. There's a lot of biosimilar products ready to hit the market in 2023. It surprised me that the analysts said they're in a good position. They've been focusing a lot of their efforts on the next generation products to replace Humira. That's my colleague, Eric Saganowski. Later, we'll hear more from him about the current outlook for mergers and acquisitions in the biopharma industry. I'm Teresa Carey. And this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, July 1st, and it's starting to look like summer for me here in Maine, but the FDA is already thinking about the fall. The FDA advisors resoundly recommend that a component of the Omicron variant be added to future vaccine doses. We'll talk more about that later. In the meantime, stick with us. We've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. Two companies just revealed study results showing that their drug, Rexulti, can reduce agitation in Alzheimer's AAD patients. People with this type of Alzheimer's are likely to die earlier than those who are AAD-free. Kevin Dunlevy has more. It's been a rough 12 months for Alzheimer's disease patients who are hoping for a treatment for their condition. The FDA approved Biogen's Aduhelm in June of last year. Since then, it's been all downhill for the controversial drug. And now, the only way for patients to get Aduhelm is by joining a clinical trial. Then earlier this month came more bad news. The FDA gave a thumbs down to Acadia's drug, Nuplaxit. But still there's hope. On Monday, two companies, Lundbeck of Denmark and Atsuka of Japan, reported positive results of their drug. The companies said they would apply for an approval by the end of this year. Rituxi is a schizophrenia drug that was approved in 2015, but now the companies are showing it can reduce agitation in Alzheimer's patients. The condition, which is called AAD, is very prevalent in those with Alzheimer's. And those that have it are usually worse off. They tend to enter nursing homes earlier and are generally less healthy and more likely to die sooner than others with non-AAD Alzheimer's. Rixalti was fast-tracked by the FDA in 2016, and now, with some luck, it may end up on the market soon. Three months ago, Novartis announced that it would combine its global pharmaceutical and oncology units. And now, they've announced a wave of layoffs. Here's Eric Saganowski with the details. In total, Novartis plans to lay off 8,000 employees out of its worldwide workforce of 108,000. Novartis said its decision to combine its pharmaceutical and oncology units will allow the company to reduce duplications of business structures in every country. A statement this week by Novartis described the new structure as leaner and simpler. Aside from combining its pharma and oncology units, Novartis is also in the process of joining its technical operations and customer and technology solutions groups. Again, that will result in job cuts. This week, Novartis said it's making progress on all of these changes and has appointed most of its leadership teams. But it's not just staffers being affected. When Novartis revealed its global shakeup in early April, three former Novartis executives were left without positions at the company. Those were Novartis' former president of oncology, Suzanne Schaefer, former chief medical officer, Jean Tsai, and former president of customer and technology solutions, Robert Welteverden. While the biotech field has seen rounds of layoffs sweep across the industry lately, this is the first major round of big pharma layoffs we have seen in quite some time. Clover Biopharmaceuticals says a booster dose of its COVID vaccine significantly increased antibody levels against not one, 
but two different Omicron subvariants. Now the company is looking to complete a number of regulatory filings by the end of the year. Here's Max Bayer. Clover Biopharmaceuticals' COVID jab has not yet been authorized anywhere, but the company has new data showing a rise in antibody levels against two Omicron subvariants following a booster dose. The data is scant but reassuring. It comes as the company is looking to complete regulatory filings in China, Europe, and the World Health Organization later this year. Last September, the company reported that the vaccine was 67% effective overall. Clover has received significant investment to make the shot from the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, or CEPI, a Norwegian nonprofit. CEPI is helping organizing COVAX, a program aimed at delivering COVID vaccines to countries around the world. It is funded by donations. CEPI has given Clover nearly $400 million total to help fund the shot's development. In return, Clover has committed at least 414 million vaccine doses to the COVAX program. Once a promising opportunity to treat the deadly disease called NASH is now raising doubts. This fatty liver disease is severe and often leads to death, and there is no treatment. But how did Novo Nordisk's drug fare in a clinical trial? You don't have to be an alcoholic to get cirrhosis of the liver. The non-alcoholic version of the disease, commonly known by its acronym NASH, can be just as damaging to the liver and just as fatal. And NASH is a growing problem, especially when you consider that it is linked to obesity. Another problem with NASH is that there is no reliable treatment. It hasn't been for lack of trying. Companies large and small have taken their best shot at solving NASH. And here's why. According to analysts, the market is a $35 billion opportunity. Two years ago, Novo Nordisk conducted a successful study of its type 2 diabetes drug semaglutide, showing its effectiveness against NASH. But now, another study on patients with the more advanced stage of the disease has cast doubt on its use against NASH. In fact, a placebo was nearly three times as effective in improving liver fibrosis. Novo Nordisk says it will continue to investigate semaglutide. A phase 3 study is already underway. But with this recent result, it is possible that another candidate will be tossed into the Nash graveyard. In preparation for the fall, FDA advisors resoundingly recommended that a component of the Omicron variant be added to future vaccine doses. But just what that new vaccine formula looks like will be up to the agency to decide. Here to discuss how the committee came to its decision and what the future holds is Annalie Armstrong and Max Bayer. Max, it's a tradition as a pharma reporter to spend your day at an FDA adcom meeting. So we had one Tuesday. Max, why don't you take it away and tell us what the committee heard? So the committee met, as you mentioned, to sort of discuss uh, and and ultimately decide whether they would recommend adding an Omicron component uh, to future uh, COVID vaccines, uh, COVID vaccine boosters specifically. That's what they were voting on. The reason for this, and 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 Dr. Uh, Peter Marks, who heads the agency's Centers for Biologics Research and Evaluation, uh, said the impetus for this was really that you have half of the uh, vaccinated population that has yet to even receive a booster, uh, and you have evidence to suggest that Omicron significantly stunts uh, or or diminishes efficacy. Uh, after about 150 days for people who are boosted. So essentially, you had the FDA sort of warning about, uh, you know, a potential surge in cases should there be an underboosted 
uh, and ultimately, you know, potentially less effective vaccine to boost with uh, come the fall and winter when people start uh, to come inside. So that was basically why the uh, verb pack was convened to try and see if there, uh, you know, could be an alternative to that. Well, that sounds super easy to solve. I bet they figured it out, right? <laughs> yeah, so easy that people were referencing crystal balls the entire afternoon and how much science has crystal balls and loves crystal balls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what did the committee hear from the companies that were there? You had really three kinds of data that, that were looked at. Let's start with Moderna. Moderna really focused on a bivalent, meaning a vaccine with parts of Omicron and parts of the prototype vaccine, the one that we've uh, been given to millions of people. Uh, they were focusing on that bivalent vaccine and how uh, it compared to the prototype vaccine but it mainly looked at uh, the effectiveness against BA1. BA1 is the subvariant of Omicron that was spreading last winter. Uh, that's not the variant uh, subvariant of Omicron that we're seeing now. So that that sort of raised some eyebrows in, in folks. Um, and some committee members, uh, namely Paul Offit, was a little concerned that they didn't have comparator data of a fourth dose, which we know is authorized for people 50 and older, uh, of that uh, of, of that Omicron bivalent with the prototype. What the data was showing is actually not the most circulating variant. Um, and so, you know, is that maybe the best measure to look at um, what we would want in the fall? Okay, so back pocket that. <laughs> um, you then had Pfizer. Pfizer was also looking at a bivalent. They also had data from a monovalent Omicron vaccine. That is no aspect of the prototype in this new formulation, only Omicron. A huge caveat is it was in mice, right? They, almost similarly to Moderna, sort of lacked this additional data in humans. So you're still sort of like not really giving the committee everything that they'd like to see to make a determination on what we're putting in humans in, in merely a few months. Last, you had Novavax. Maybe the surprise of the whole... Uh, the whole committee hearing for a number of reasons, mainly first and foremost is their original shot is not even authorized yet. Uh, the committee recently met and, and recommended it, but the FDA has not yet authorized it. But they were able to show that with an increase in boosting, both a third dose and then subsequently a fourth dose, that they were able to sort of actually sort of restrain that genetic drifting that happens, that sort of immune drifting that we're seeing where some of the Omicron variants are able to escape immunity. So you basically had like these three different companies, all with little bits and pieces of data that were valuable here and valuable there, but still sort of left the committee a little, you know, scratching their heads. All right. So to kind of sum it up, all three of these main companies, they have data, but it's maybe not perfect to inform the FDA and this committee. That would be a great way to summarize it. And maybe the data that is available from the manufacturers or the data that's available from our public health officials, um, you know, were, were, is not necessarily sufficient for a full recommendation of things, but they're yet, yet they're sort of tasked with doing so. Um, I will say really briefly that as it pertains to the Novavax vaccine, which again is, is interesting because uh, it's not even authorized, a lot of committee members walked away and said that they were most impressed by that data. Um, and, you know, it was interesting to hear that given that it's not authorized. Mm -hmm. So besides kind of the gaps in data, what they, what they don't know, what concerns were raised? What, what else did they wish that, that they had more to work with? First of all, lack of data in kids. This was really almost entirely about adults. And we know what we're seeing now and what's frustrated parents across the country is how long it's taken uh, to have data, 
uh, and to ultimately have vaccines authorized for kids, particularly kids uh, under six and under five. Uh, so that that sort of frustrated some committee members that it seems like here we go again. We're going to update this vaccine. It's going to be months, if not years before we see it in kids. So that was that was a concern. Correlate of protection is another issue. Uh, so I'm not going to get into the weeds here, but essentially the the bulk of the data you're seeing when at a presentation like this are antibody levels and how additional vaccine doses or a change in the vaccine composition increases those levels. But there still isn't sort of a certified or confirmed test um, or mechanism that the FDA has uh, has sort of certified and sort of rubber stamped saying, here's the rise in antibody levels and what we know, how that correlates to actual protection in, 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 in people. So so again, no matter how good that data is of, of neutralizing levels, committee members often point out, we don't, you know, that's not the same as saying, oh, the vaccine is 94% effective because they're not, we don't, we don't have that comparison yet. Uh, and then lastly is, you know, the, the, the committee members would have loved to have more safety data um, just to be able to speak, you know, more confidently about the impacts of things like myocarditis. Um, and again, that sort of ties into the kids situation as well. But that was, that was another uh, uh, concern. All right. So after all of that muddy data, all the stuff they don't know, what did they ultimately decide? So, so in, 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 in classic verb pack fashion, and, and maybe, you know, this is sort of one of the great things about science as a whole, uh, you know, after what seems like a lot of people sort of picking holes at the data and really sort of, uh, you know, wary about what they were considering, they almost, uh, uh, they, they resoundingly voted to recommend for an Omicron component, which, and, and I don't want to under, undersell people's concerns that were still had, you know, to a vote of 19 to two, 19 yeses and two noes, the committee voted to add that Omicron component, because what's the ultimate question that, that these scientists are, are debating? Benefit versus risk. Evidence suggests that by adding an Omicron component, a variant component to the vaccine, you know, that we're seeing is contributing to immune evasion, uh, that could broaden uh, your immune system's ability to not only uh, tackle the Omicron variant, but any potential uh, genetic shifts in the future. You know, there's, as, as we started, there is no crystal ball. Um, you know, there is no perfect way to predict what a future variant is going to look like, how transmissible it's going to be, how much immune, immune evasion is going to be. But this felt like and what scientists felt like were their best chance to sort of protect against what those changes might be. All right. So these committees, they are, are not the final decision. Obviously, it's up to the FDA now. So what happens next? So the 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 uh, committee only recommended to include uh, a composition change for boosters. Uh, the FDA, though, might still take that recommendation and apply it to the primary series. So that remains to be determined. And again, you were seeing data from these monovalent vaccines and these bivalent vaccines. You were seeing you know, some of this mouse data with a BA4-5 vaccine, though a lot of the data we were seeing was BA1. FDA is going to decide, do we want the monovalent or the bivalent? And, are, and, and what, what part of Omicron are we going to ask for in this vaccine? Are we going to ask for BA1 to be the part or BA4-5? Might they wait even longer to see if there's a new variant that arises? Maybe that's what they put in. So what this actually looks like uh, is, is what the FDA is going to just have to decide. Uh, Marks was, was wary to, to uh, put a time schedule on a regulatory decision there, but that's going to be coming next. If it is the BA4-5, um, which did seem to be what some of the committee members uh, preferred, though there wasn't a hard number there. Uh, Moderna and Pfizer have said that at the earliest, they could have doses available of those bivalent vaccines 
uh, by October. It's a difficult decision for the FDA. Um, and I guess we'll, we'll keep following it to see what they recommend. Two reports discuss the outlook for mergers and acquisitions in the biopharma industry. Those reports came from Moody's and PwC. Both reports point to an uptick in activity in both the short and long term. The Moody report says companies have a lot of financial flexibility. The PwC report agrees and says why the time is right for an increase in deals. Here's Eric Saganowski and Kevin Dunleavy. Hey, Eric. We had two stories last week examining the outlook for mergers and acquisitions. And I think the best way to sum them up is that there's going to be an uptick in activity here, both in the short term and long term. If we go back to the spring of 2020, which really was the outside of the pandemic, we saw five straight quarters of increases in M&A activity. But then over the last three quarters, we've seen a depression of the market uh, in terms of both volume of the deals and their values. Values are down 58% and volume down 33%. But according to both of these reports, there's going to be a lot of factors at play that suggest more activity is imminent. Can you talk about some of those? One thing to note right off the top is that the Federal Trade Commission has been looking into farmer mergers and acquisitions for about a year now. Um, that's been That's kept biotech and pharma executives on the sidelines to see how that plays out. Um, going forward, we could see an increase in M&A because pharma companies are facing patent expirations and have cash to deploy. So these articles talked about the cash positions at a lot of the big pharma companies and pharma companies that tapped into the COVID-19 vaccine or therapeutics markets are in a particularly good spot for M&A. Some other trends we're seeing is that biotech valuations have been falling, leading potential acquirers to be more interested. Uh, several big pharma companies, like I mentioned, have, are facing patent cliffs later in this decade. And outside of those trends, pharma companies are always looking for ways to the, add to their pipelines. These deals might be different, though, than deals we've seen in the past. We saw Bristol-Myers Squibb by Celgene and Abbey by Allergan. Um, those are major deals that reshape the industry. Uh, we might not see deals that large. I think going back to what you said, Eric, about the FTC, uh, those are the type of deals that they would really look at because you have more potential for monopolies, I think, certainly. Bristol-Myers, Celgene, AbbVie, Aller, Allergen are great examples of, you know, ones where companies are acquiring a lot of assets that uh, that might overlap assets. More companies looking, rather than buying assets, uh, that are late stage, looking at buying technologies and kind of rounding out their portfolios that way. I think we'll also see some of these bolt-on or tuck-in acquisitions where companies are bought but sort of remain intact as part of the parent company. The deals might be more speculative. Uh, companies will take multiple shots on goal. We often hear that uh, tactic, but that's something that could really happen now, especially with the valuations of the biotechs being so low. Ipsen bought Epzine for what seems like a paltry sum of $247 million. Um, but Epzine lost 90% of its value over last year. So uh, I think these are the type of deals we might see much more so than the, than the larger ones. Shifting gears, one of the reports from Moody zeroed in on the patent clip angle and said in the last three years of, uh, of the decade, many companies will really be exposed 
What companies are those going to be, Eric? Uh, which ones will be the most vulnerable? So this is part of the natural life cycle of pharma. After a certain amount of time on the market, drugs lose their patent protections. Um, we have some big ones coming up later in the decade. And since it's later in the decade, these companies will have time to prepare. Um, Bristol-Myers Squibb, even though they bought Celgene a couple years ago, they're already facing generics for their multiple myeloma blockbuster Revlimid. Um, later this year, Optivo, a cancer drug, and Eliquis, a blood thinner, are going to fall to generics. Um, those are major sellers for BMS, so keep an eye out for them. They'll probably be active, you know, building their pipeline to prepare for that. Pfizer, they've made a ton of money with their COVID drug and vaccine. They're going to be losing patent protection for Ibrantz, uh, breast cancer medicine breast cancer medicine, and Zelljans, an autoimmune drug. Lastly, the report mentioned Merck. Right now, they kind of revolve around their cancer blockbuster, Keytruda. It generated $17 billion in sales last year. So market watchers have been keeping an eye on them for a while to see their strategy to prepare for Keytruda's patent cliff. In your story, though, you talked about these companies' financial flexibility. Um, what are you seeing with their ability to make deals? Yeah, the, uh, the analysts at Moody's they put a uh, they put a score on everyone's or really a rating, and they rated all, all three of those companies that you mentioned: Pfizer, Merck, and BMS, as having lots of flexibility. Um, Pfizer, of course, as you mentioned, with the the COVID money that they drummed up, uh, they in fact started the year with thirty one point six billion in cash, uh, tied with with uh, Johnson and Johnson at the top of the list. Um, and they've already taken some steps to address uh, to address those issues with the patent uh, with the loss of exclusivity. They bought Arena for six point seven billion, and they bought a chunk of Biohaven for eleven point six to get some of its uh, migraine treatments. Merck, you know, they've talked for probably a couple of years here about uh, about making moves, and sure enough, it's been rumored for the last ten days or so. That they're uh, the front runner to uh, jump in and and make a major purchase, about a forty billion dollar deal. And uh, again, maybe that's one that the FTC will make them uh, think twice about. But it might turn out that they'll just get a part of Sieg, and then uh, and that would might serve their purposes anyway. And then BMS, they're in a great cash position as well. Seventeen point two billion they started the year with, and they just recently made a deal for Mitocardia, thirteen point one billion that. Uh, That'll help round out their portfolio too. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there are companies in very good shape uh, through the end of the decade. Can you talk about a few of those, Eric? Sure. Uh, the one that jumped out at me was Abvi. I've been covering their Humira patent cliff for several years now. There's a lot of biosimilar products ready to hit the market in 2023. Um, it surprised me to, that the analysts said they're in a good position. They've been focusing a lot of their efforts on the next generation products to replace Humira, those are Rinvoke and Skyrizi. Outside of Abbey, AstraZeneca and Sanofi were two companies that the analysts said are more stable heading into later this decade on the patent and revenue front. Um, on the cash front, you, you talked about a couple of companies in your story that are sitting on big cash positions. So what are those? Yeah, Johnson & Johnson tied with Pfizer at uh, $31.6 entering the year. But they've got uh, they've got a little uh, a litigation problem with the talc uh, that could really get out of control here. So they uh, they probably can't afford at this time to to be too aggressive. 
And then the other company that's in great position is Novartis at $28.8 billion. A lot of that, of course, was due to their sale of the stake in Roche, but they'll have a lot of flexibility and it'll be interesting to see what kind of move they make here. That's it for The Top Line. I'm senior producer Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. Don't forget to follow The Top Line on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line. 